endless corners of our dying ocean We come with answers for relations that were broken We reclaim the land and futures that were stolen Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality by diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. In the second season of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we focus on climate justice. As the climate crisis is accelerating and inequalities are on the rise, we ask, how can we get urgent climate action that is also just? Should we be taken to the streets or lobby the halls of power? And how to come together across movements to make sure all voices are heard? My name is Barbara van Passen. For this episode, I went back to my home country of the Netherlands to learn more about the role of civil disobedience, art and imagination. I'm excited to speak to Chihiro Geusenbroek, a Bolivian Dutch filmmaker, artist and activist who plays an important role in building climate justice movements. She occupied coal mines and held disobedient art performances in major museums and uses music and spoken word to remind us of the injustices and the vision. Hear what it means to take a radical approach and how citizens' direct action and storytelling can help us turn the tide. This and more in today's episode of the People vs. Inequality podcast. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. Welcome to Hero. Thank you for making the time. It's really great to have you here. Hi, Barbara. I'm happy to be here with you and have this conversation today. It's really nice because, as I mentioned in the introduction, I kind of feel like I went back to my home country and, and explore actually a scene that I didn't know so well, to my surprise, because I have been working on these issues. I'm very interested, but it's been a really good opportunity to a deep dive into what the movements are really doing, the people really building the work on the ground. And we just heard a bit of your music and I love it. I think it's really inspiring and it, it makes me wonder if there's been a recent piece or of music or literature or something else that has triggered you, that has really inspired you. Lovely question. I think last year, some friends of mine organized the Arts of Resistance and they invited Loki, a revolutionary hip-hop artist, Iraqi-British, to the Netherlands. And I had a great honor to be on the same stage in a panel and perform Shalma's Fall Song. And I think this really inspired me to also see like another elder in the movement that has gone through different waves of activism as well. And it really inspired me also to think about the power of songs and how they can ignite the fire because the whole room was on fire. Like due to COVID, we only could have a few people in the room, but they were singing along and hearts were so ignited. It relights the fire that needs to be kindled all the time to stay in the struggle as well. Well, I wish I was there. I'm really missing, missing the live music yeah. these days. It's often said that music is such an important component of movement building and of keeping keeping up the struggle, right? If you look at history, 
songs have played a big role. Definitely. And with, with Rise Up, what me and Florian, who we wrote it together, really wanted to do was a creative vision. Because oftentimes in the movement will be in marches and it'll be like, what do you want? Climate justice. When do we want it now? And then you ask people, what is climate justice? And they're like, yeah, well, you know, some people polluted more and some people are suffering more. And that's about it. We wanted to, you know, in, in the chorus kind of create lines that kind of said like, this is climate justice, that's climate justice, this is in our vision, that's in our vision. We need to take down racist walls and borders and fossil company needs to fall and like actually create these lines as earworm to inform our resistance. Yeah, that might be part of why I liked it so much. I, I'm now thinking uh, because I'm increasingly thinking the visioning is so important. I, I I have a bit of a sort of policy nerd background myself. I think that's also important. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that later. But what we really need now, and I really like the recent piece by um, Mary Anglaise Hegler. I don't know if you know her. Um, she also has a, a podcast called The Hot Take, who was saying that to build a beautiful world, we need to first imagine it um, and uh, really to have a, a much stronger focus on the role of art in, in the climate justice movement. So it's, uh, was also yeah. one of the reasons I'm, I'm so happy to speak to you today. Yeah, radical imagination is needed. You know, we can't have an exact blueprint, but you need to navigate. Strategy is getting from point A to B. So you kind of need to have an idea, a, a vision of what B is to navigate towards, to also hold you through the darkness of pushback to know what you're doing it for. So totally agree on that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you already mentioned the importance of knowing what it means to you, climate justice, and knowing what drives you and, and what ignites you. Uh, and we always like to hear a little bit about who we have uh, with us uh, today. With you, I had the privilege of being able to watch a whole documentary on your activist coming of age film called Radical Friend. So I, I already know a little bit more. But maybe for those listeners that haven't seen the film yet, I recommend to do so. But could you share a little bit of how you became the activist you are today and the choices or, or insights you, you gained along the road? Yeah, definitely. I think it's always very important to, to share these stories because there's this mythical idea that activists are not ordinary people or something and we are <laughs> and sometimes I also think that there isn't always one moment that turns you into an activist but there's like a sequence of moments so for me I really always felt that the natural world as well as people were really under attack in by colonial capitalism and this started when I was a little child and I didn't have the vocabulary for it but I would be on the back of my mom's bike. She drove us to school and I would feel the bumps of the tree roots breaking through the brick kind of surface of the street. And I'd be like, yes, trees, you know, you shouldn't be choked by the city. You shouldn't be choked by bricks and the arrogance that displaces relations with other beings, be them green or people or animals. I think I've always felt like something was very eerie or out of place, the way that city life kind of seduces you to think that everything comes out of nowhere. When you know there's like this whole web of relations behind it that are not being honored and not being treated in reciprocity. But then I think it takes other activists to become an activist often because it's a communal endeavor as you learn to 
correct societies of mass destruction. You have to do it together. So for me, it took enrollment in university to bump into organization like a socialist activist group. And uh, I was quite ready to recruit myself. And this was around the time when protest was happening uh, against the war in Iraq or the invasion in Iraq. And that was already for me very much an environmental story as well, like no blood for oil and no to NATO and these kind of things, knowing that the military complex is like the biggest polluter, the U.S. military is the biggest polluter in the world. So for me, that inequality that was being produced by oppression was quite clear already. It took some extra years to to navigate into my role as a climate justice organizer, because back then there was no climate movement. There were just NGOs did their thing. Let's dive a little bit into the how of what you're doing. And I want to start off with the civil disobedience and direct action, because it's something that we haven't talked so much on this show about yet. And at the same time, we know from history, it's really important in making change happen. I mean, some of the biggest changes in history, of course, have had strong civil disobedience components. And in the climate movement, of course, it's a really important strategy and, uh, and tactic. Can you say a little bit about what it is that you have done, maybe with Ende Gelender or with Code Road that you're a part of? Um, these are movements within Europe adopting this type of strategy. And how you see that contributing to getting the changes that we need? Sure. I've always wanted to escalate in a way that was taking care of people as well. So, and I think civil disobedience, men such as Ende and Gode Roads, know that signing a petition is not going to change a politic system or a political system that is not confused about its neglect of environment or climate or people. It's not confused about it. So it's not just about raising awareness when you want to move the needle politically. It's about making toxic business, violent business as usual, impossible. And so historically, there have always been so many movements that we're not getting taught in school that have used this understanding that it takes shutdown actions, whether that's roadblocks or strikes or shutting down a mine or putting your body in front of harm's way in different ways. Like, for example, even the idea that a woman can vote was fought for such a long time with petitions and niceness, but it took a more radical stand where, where people actually exploded things and people died that made it toxic business as usual, exclusion of women's voting rights could no longer be upheld. And with environment, we've seen so many people and places already being used as sacrifice zone for hundreds of years. You know, that's the whole colonial story. We see that entitlement uh, politics have, have left so many people um, in, in loss and damage. So it really poses the question, you know, what to do with your relative privilege here in, in global North countries as a citizen to put your body in harm's way and not to do it alone, but to do it together, to do it with an action consensus. Often these types of actions like shutting down a coal mine will take up to a year of prep work, like conferences in which we discuss our action consensus, what we will and will not do, how we stay together, how we stick through difficult situations with police repression, how we supply aftercare after people get arrested, uh, how to deal with interrogation and 
say no comment all the way. So this is an incredibly transformative process to do that coalition work, to do that recruitment work, and then to follow through and actually have the transformative experience of shutting down diggers, you know, like in Germany, uh, where Ende Galende built on the practice of climate camps, where thousands of people would come together, they built this shutdown actions uh, starting in 2015, knowing that they had enough capacity to mobilize over like around 1,500 people. The next year, there were 3,000 or 4,000 people. And ever since, sometimes they have two actions a year with three or 4,000 people that are willing to walk into mines that when you walk there, it really looks like Mordor. It looks like a dead place where entire landscapes have been sacrificed to dig, dig, dig. Just shutting them down for one day may seem like futile because the next day they're putting them on again. Mm. But we've seen that just shutting them down for one day meant that the 4,000 people that shut it down could have flown around the world, like from Amsterdam to New York and back again. That's how much in terms of emissions mm. was was safe by shutting it down for one day. And meanwhile, we're building examples in media and in storytelling that it can be done, that you don't need to wait for crony politicians to be awakened, but that it is always history has always been made by people who are who are working together to make history together. It's uh, impressive and also a great deal of, of respect because it's also requires quite a bit of courage you've mentioned some of the of the challenges you face in such a in such a process uh, of course you're met with resistance you're hurting economically a powerful industry i like what you're saying also about the the experience being transformative how of course these actions are important as a as a signal to society as a signal to the to the industry but they're also important for the actual movement building that you're doing for building this this longer-term community that I think plays such a big role in the work that you do. So it takes all these like little steps to build that capacity. And once you've been in such an experience, it's like in a movie, you know, there's the point of no return. Hmm. It's like, first, there might be a reluctant hero or something that doesn't really want to be in the plot. But once there's a transformative experience where you see like, wow, there's no turning back from this, you know, this is how assault takes place and this is how I'm part of this unfolding plot the whole idea of neutrality kind of falls apart there's no way of standing on the sideline and this is how movements grow what it's all about (laughs) and uh what I also think is interesting because there is I think there's a lot of misconceptions around these type of actions and a lot of people who might be really worried about dangerous climate change and, and climate justice, but not willing or ready to do this type of work. What's striking about Ende Gelände is that it's had quite the impact. I mean, the German brown coal sector was really strong and is really being outfaced quicker than it would have been without this work. Definitely. And that's on the policy side, but also on the movement side, Ende Gelände helped birth different new local organizations such as Code Road, because the people who went to Endegelende from the Netherlands and saw that they could mobilize four buses to Germany at some point were like, oh, wait, if we can mobilize four buses, then we can do this in the Netherlands. And then we started Code Road 
to shut down Coal Harbor in Amsterdam to direct attention to something that the city branding didn't really want to deal with, that it had like this dirty uh, blood coal from Colombia in its harbor. And in Czech Republic, I don't know if I pronounce it well, but it's a, it's also like Ende Galende, a direct action group that grew from just people participating in Ende Galende in Germany. It's, it's really important to also note that it's quite an international endeavor. And through these international mobilizations, we also birth groups that in the beginning didn't have enough capacity to start up. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's one of the climate movements that from the beginning has taken a strong intersectional decolonial approach, I think. Can you say a little bit about that uh, for, for Ende Gelende and maybe also Code Road and how you see the movements of today? Are they heading into that direction? Are they learning from, from those movements that have been clear about their political positions and the injustice side of, of climate change from the beginning? Thank you so much for asking that question, because I think one of the things that has been really important about Ende Galinda, by the way, it means to hear no further, like, ya basta. Um, good that you're saying this, because there are not many German speakers on this show, probably. Yeah, <laughs> the good thing is that from the beginning, in their action consensus, they had a line that in no way they would tolerate or allow for appropriation by the extreme right or any fascist purposes, which in Germany is also a huge thing. And I think we in Code Raut also took that immediately in our, into our action consensus. And over the years from within the movement, there was a desire to reflect on like how we build different fingers. When we go to the coal mine, there are different kind of columns or different uh, starting points for different groups. So there's like a march of the green color finger or the purple color finger or the yellow finger, and they might take different routes into the mine. So to navigate around police intervention. And there was the need for a finger to be like queer anti-ableist finger. So they had action consensus, like we're not going to run in a way through police lines that leave people behind. Thank you for sharing that a bit because this podcast is about inequality and um, people taking on inequalities and our general approach to climate justice would, would also take that into account. But I think for some people it's it's been quite difficult for both environmental organizations and, and also some of the some of yeah some of the climate groups to have all these things come together. It's a complicated narrative. They think it might distract, it might not reach as many people if the story gets maybe too political or too inclusive, we would say. Could you and say something? Mm. Yeah, sorry, I have to interrupt because I hear this a lot and it's a total myth. So I think if we look at which movements are being successful, farmers movement in India, they're deeply intersectional because they realize that the oppression of earth always comes hand in hand with the oppression of peoples. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I think that's a really important reminder of why this is so important and uh, the challenge I had, and it's also hopeful that there is progress in this field. The past conversations I've had, we spoke to Tess around sort of bringing in the workers into the UK, uh, fossil-free movements, another big challenge, of course, uh, but really important. And to have a global justice perspective uh, to these issues as well, which is something that I think you look at 
a lot, also building on your Bolivian roots. So I think my own path, starting with the, the movie I made, Radical Friends in Bolivia, really builds on an understanding that people have been fighting against ecocide and genocide for many centuries. It's not even a question, national or international work. It's about understanding that our ancestors in this struggle, no matter where you're from, have been from around the world, have been earth protectors, water protectors from around the world. So if, if you don't feel connected with that, I think your struggle is still too small. I mean, so much of the climate movement is only about getting fossil free. Fossil fuels are, are just such a small part of the whole story. You know, it's not about changing energy. It's just about changing power. I feel so strongly rooted in it that so much of NGO work seems so trivial and ununderstandable to me. What I'm interested to hear is how you're trying to yeah, bring these connections that are so obvious to you, the, the learnings from the elders. I think that's something you the activist elders that you refer to, the learnings from elsewhere into the different spaces. Sure. I think it, it changed over time also with my position in a movement. So in 2015, uh, again, this was a pivotal year also because we did a lot of international uh, Europe-wide mobilization towards Paris, uh, the climate summit that happened there. There was like this conference by Milieu Defensi, like the Friends of the Earth Dutch office. And they showed this very happy peppy after video of Paris. And besides the whole conference, just having white people on stage, except for one person of color from Greenpeace, I called to the attention that that video was very white, that, you know, like politically that, that you, you celebrate a really repressed protest that, you know, most it was forbidden to even yeah, protest to people. And the fact that, you know, for Global South, for Indigenous people, for farmers movement, they said this is a death pact. Over time, I'm one of the few people of color that have lasted for such a long time in the Dutch movement. Uh, I'm happy to see there are more people of color joining in again, mostly through uh, Extinction Rebellion. But the people of color that were kind of there a few years ago and have done massive work, a lot of them burned out or, you know, just took a step back because it's so toxic, the, the, the white movement. Mm. So now I have a position where every week people approach me for talks, for guest lectures at universities, for international events. So I have a relative position of power, I guess. And so my role has also changed in the way that I can address these issues in NGOs, where they also hire me to train groups about intersectionality and why every campaign that you do, whether it's around fast fashion or deforestation or plastic, should begin with the question of how did the company or the policy that is in place right now that is creating such harm, how did they get their power? Yeah. And often you will find a very colonial story, like with Shell, you know, they, they appropriated their oil from Indonesia when it was a Dutch colony. They got exclusive oil exploration rights because of English colonization in Nigeria, all these kind of stories. And if you erase that from your campaigning, you erase the lives of many that went before you and that pretty racist, classist, 
elitist and opportunist to only deal with what's in front of you and helps you get to the table faster instead of be principled of like how do we restore all our relations yeah I I recognize a lot in what you're saying and um, I think it's quite a shift that you did go from being that annoying person in the room (laughs) asking the question that you know they probably didn't really want to hear to being the person that gets hired as an expert because they're really trying to figure out how to address these issues whilst we're not there yet. That is a pretty amazing shift. And it is thanks to people like you and, and of course others that were willing to speak out in those awkward moments. And I think part of my strategy has always been build enough relations that you're unmissable. Hmm. So you can't be dismissed because <laughs> they kind of need you. So be as obnoxious as your moral compass tells you to be because people are dying and that, you know, like you can't be silent. You have to be obnoxious. But at the same time, build enough friends so you can weather the storm, also the storm within movement. And you did a pretty impressive exhibition on the people-powered movement versus Shell, uh, which I think both showed the strength of the movement, um, as well as the the devastation uh, that the company has contributed to. And I was wondering if you could share with us one of the pieces that you made there, as I think it would be a good illustration of how art uh, Mm. can work. Thank you for that question. I uh, worked together with Visila on the exhibition, starting with the idea that we wanted to show that there are like a hundred different reasons to hate Shell and rise up against it. And that for most protectors that fought Shell, the door to action wasn't necessarily climate, but anti-racism, anti-colonialism, labor disputes, health labor disputes. And so I wanted to visualize in an installation an analysis that I've had for a long time that climate change didn't drop from the sky. We often only talk about CO2 and science, but as above, so below, like before the climate got racked in the atmosphere, it got racked on earth. And so I wanted to have a grounded storytelling. So we made a grounded earth tub, a big tub filled with black earth in which we made a world map just the outlining of a world map with papier-mâché, red lines. And from there, draw red lines up to the sky. There was like this kind of dome above it. And in those red lines were news clippings of different protests or different harms that Shell had done. And for me, it's always been the intention to restore all relations. So to also have your analysis through a web lens that all of these things are connected and all of these things have caused havoc and harm on the ground to people, places, and other beings. Yeah, thank you for for illustrating that. Besides the fact that it's a very good way of showing just the extent, uh, the vastness of of the injustices, I I also think it's... uh, the web is interesting because we often talk about taking a systems approach and we need to change the system. And I think people mean very different things by that. But I think this is, a, is an illustration and a reminder of the importance of doing that analysis. And you've previously talked about power. 
that is also, of course, also part of that, really doing that analysis of the system, of the interconnections, of, of the power dynamics at play, and then to build your strategies on that. And that, I think, is really useful for anyone trying to make change happen. Yeah, maybe a final note on that. I think I'm most proud of <laughs> are seeding two things. One, Shelma's fall. I seeded that by organizing together with a friend a block at the anti-racism march, mm. a block against climate racism. And so I would put pressure on all the NGOs, all the permaculture groups, all the sustainability groups and say, will you walk with us at the anti-racism march in the green block against climate racism? So that did one thing. And at the same time with another friend, I developed all these different chants that we could chant there. Shalmas Fall has then kind of seeded in so many other groups to assert that like all fossil fuel companies must fall. And yeah, the idea of it being a loving assertion to say that they must fall because it actually protects lives. Uh, whereas media tends to say, oh, that's radical. What if they change their way? Shouldn't we look for a mutual solution? And that's when you're allegiance doesn't lie with the people that are got their water poisoned and have seen their kids die. Um, that's when your allegiance lies with capital. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And I think this brings us also to a question on a, a, a challenge for the movements and others working for, for climate justice, including NGOs. And because both the analysis and the strategies, of course, are, are quite different. And I, I tend to think that. Uh, they can be complementary, and and as long as you coordinate smartly, you know, maybe better than than is the case today between the inside and outside strategies, you can get there. Do you see a, a need for other strategies too, for other tactics? And if so, how could that work? So I definitely see that we should be wide in tactics. Like it's super good that some NGOs can wage court cases that grassroots can't because they don't have the money and the power to do that. In that way, you can be complementary because court cases also allow for slower release of arguments, argumentation, facts and data. And that's really much needed. But I don't agree with our difference in principles. And I th think too much NGO work is very opportunistic. And what happens in opportunism is that you forget about the people who are not as close to the table, the negotiation table as you are. There's a reason that you are midway on the ladder to be a buffer for the outrage of those lower on the ladder. I think there is a, a clear concern, and someone raised that also in our first series, Emilia Reyes, uh, was really calling on uh, Global North NGOs to stand with Global South feminists, activists, uh, indigenous peoples. And what I think sometimes happens is there, I mean, I think organizations can be opportunistic for many reasons, but there's also this idea of we have to get, you know, concrete results. And if we ask too much, maybe we don't get it. Um, but there is a real question about the legitimacy or the mandate that you come with and what you might be sacrificing in that process. So yeah, I think it's really important that this discussion is held and that the listening part gets much, much stronger. Here, I think it's important to also uphold a positive example of how 
reformation and revolution can happen at the same time <laughs> with the artistic uh, direct action of fossil free culture. So you can look at this collective. It's a relatively uh, small collective that has booked quite some success with uh, divesting, getting museums or cultural institutions to break their ties, their financial ties to the shell in the Netherlands. And while that is reform, it's a small step. In their communication, they always embody a feminist, anti-colonial message. So I think that's that's a difference, you know, like change always happens by the small steps, but you want to build those incremental changes with the right allegiance and narrative insights, the intelligence and the also knowledge production of people that are systematically kept out of the room. So when you look at, is this incremental step also improving relations with the, the ones most oppressed, then you know you're on a pathway of restoring relations. Whereas if you're building incremental change at the expense or by tokenizing people uh, who are most oppressed, then you know that there's a uh, complicity happening. That's a spot on formulation. And I think a very good reminder or question for anyone to be asking themselves when they're taking action. Thank you also for bringing in the fossil free culture. I think what's important there as well is that you come back and you show that you're not going away until it's changed. The mainstream story of media is always about activism is futile because after the action ends, it's over again. But it's not because they can end our actions, but we come back and back and back again. Their part of the story is like, you know, we come back and back and back again with more harm. And it's a toggle <laughs> about who comes back and back and back again to restore <laughs> That inspiration to carry forward for me, Julia Butterfly, who was the woman who stayed longest in a in a tree for 380 days or something. She said before going up in a tree, she didn't know if she could do it. it. Weren't there other people who could do it? She didn't even know if she was an activist, but she just knew things were wrong and that standing aside wasn't an option. And I think to me, every time when things get hard, I still think of her words, you know, like she still inspires me now that she's not in a tree <laughs> every time things get hard. So I think also that's really important that these actions don't just live for a day or a week or a year. They live forever because they keep inspiring new people or um, new generations of activists to, to stand their ground. Thank you. That's actually a really hopeful note to end on so maybe i do want to ask you if you have a, a last call to action uh, for our listeners mm. i would ask you what keeps you up at night what are you good at and how can you use those answers to make history because we need you to make history compassionately and together with friends Thank you, Chihiro. Thank you so much for being with us today, of sharing with us not only how to disrupt and to be disobedient, but also to care, to build friendships and to keep the love that drives this work. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your story and for the work that you do. It was a pleasure. It was lovely to meet you. <laughs> Thanks. People versus inequality. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
I live inspired and have learned a lot from the experiences and vision of Chihiro. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and spread the word so more people can join. Check out the resources in the show notes and of course, watch this space for more inspiring episodes coming up. Ciao!